don't go spend money once you pay off a bill. Bank it. Put it in the stock market. Put it in savings bond. Put it in gold. Put it in something that expects positive return. Don't go buy another car. He would always, you know, we would we would be sitting in his house and a new car would go by and he would say, yeah, that's a nice new car. He'd always say, remember this, though. You know, you get the new car and everybody tells you how nice it is the first day you have it. And then the second second month you have it, people tell you a little bit less. And then what happens is three or four years down the road, nobody's telling you how, how great your car is, but you still have the big payment. And you don't think your car is nice, but you've got the payment. And what a lot of people actually wind up doing is they want to get that feeling again of everybody being you know, so impressed, but they might still have two years of a loan left. So what do they do? They go roll it into the next loan. And he would tell me this, and he's telling this to me, and I'm 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. He probably says that to most 12-year-olds, and you know they roll their eyes and think, okay, whatever you're talking about. But I, I used to just listen to this and just eat it up. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is episode number 95. This is Jace, alongside with my co-host, Clark. On today's show, we have Don. He has a current net worth of around 630000 He's a teacher and has a great story on building wealth on any income. We get into his philosophy and his investment allocation. Last week on the show, we had Erica. She has a current net worth of around $1.2 million. She has a great story and investment allocation, which includes making around $400,000 on the sale of a New York apartment. She has a very unique real estate investment strategy where she rents furnished spaces out to airline employees. So a terrific story with Erica. Once again, that's episode number 94 if you're interested in that. Before we get into today's interview with Don, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identifies stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. Once again, just wanted to read a comment we received from a listener this week. This show would not happen without listeners like y'all, and we really appreciate you tuning in and contributing to the show. He says, I just wanted to let you know how much you make my Monday mornings. You are generally what I'm listening to on the exercise bike while drinking my coffee at about 4.30 a.m. Thanks for being so consistent and for unveiling the secrets behind what the successful are doing. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll jump on a call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategy, partner with a couple groups that have current deal opportunities. 
Another quick bit of information. We've been on a couple podcasts lately. A lot of y'all have asked about things that we've learned from the millionaires we've interviewed. And on the Stacking Benjamins podcast, which launched in February, titled Developing Your Big Game Plan for Your Money, we discussed some of these things. Also, we're on another one more recently, Passive Real Estate Investing Podcast with Marco Santorelli. That's episode 172, titled Lessons from Millionaires. So that will provide a little more insight into us, our stories. That's the stories of Clark and myself, Jace, and some of the lessons that we've learned from interviewing millionaires on our show. So go check out those episodes on those podcasts if you're interested. Also, we'd love to share your millionaire financial story. Our goal is to get a broad list of guests and stories. So if you'd like to be on the show as a millionaire interviewee or one that is close to millionaire status, please reach out to us. Once again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. But without any further delay, let's jump right into today's interview with Don. Don, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Um, Hi, happy to be here on the show. My background is that my wife and I are both teachers in Northern Virginia. It's a pretty expensive place to live, uh, as you know. And being two teachers, it's certainly been an interesting place to live in the fact that um, you live and you work amongst a a lot of people with high net worths who who have a lot going as far as um, education and income. And you, you kind of grow up with the idea that if you're going to go into teaching, that money isn't really going to be for you. And, and it's not. And it, it's a calling. But my wife and I have been able to prioritize spending, prioritize saving. And um, we, we think we've done pretty well for ourselves. We like where we're going, the direction we're going with our financial life, which is one of the reasons I wanted to share it with the community here. Uh, we have three children. I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three and a half month old. So if I cut out or struggle at times, understand sleep isn't something that I've been getting a whole lot of last few months. <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, but, but, but we are, we are very blessed. And this, this notion that, you know, two people living basically in a middle class income level in an expensive area of the world with three kids can't save diligently and get ahead in life. Hey, we have to stop perpetuating this myth. And I listen to your show and I listen to a lot of shows and this myth, it gets busted every day by the fire community. It gets busted every day by people of all walks of life. And, and I just wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted to share my story. Totally. So thanks for having, thanks yeah. for having me on. What is your net worth today? My net worth today is about $631,000. And what's the and makeup I, of that? I, so in our 403Bs, we have $277,000. Um, 218,000 is in the Vinix fund, which is the Vanguard institutional S&P 500. We have about 59,000 in a stable value fund, which is run by our administrator, Lincoln Financial. Uh, we have about $75,000 in Roth IRAs. All of it is in VTIAX, which is in the Vanguard total international fund. Uh, we have uh, almost $32,000 in I bonds, about $9,400 in cash. And I know between my I bonds and my cash, I'm working a lot of basically cash like uh, assets. And that's like a big no no amongst the fire community. But, and, you know, it's my sleep well at night fund and it helps me to feel good about my finances elsewhere. Uh, $7,500 in, in gold, which when you ask me later, if you do what my biggest miss is, it's probably going to be that $7,500 in gold. We have about $7,000 in a taxable M1 account, which is made up of 50% VTI, which is the Vanguard total stock market, and 
50% VEU, which is the Vanguard um, total international stock market. We have about six thousand five hundred dollars in uh, five twenty nine accounts, and that one that is solely for my oldest. And what we do is, as my children go off uh, being a, a daycare bill every month, we just take some of that money and forward it to a five twenty nine. Awesome, awesome, good for you guys, and congrats on your success. And also, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. We have about two hundred seventeen thousand dollars in home equity. We, okay. we, we, if if you ask me what what the luckiest financial thing that ever happened in my life would be, it's that my wife and I got married in two thousand eight, and we had no idea about housing markets. We had no idea about stock markets. We had no idea about anything. And around two thousand nine, we just happened to decide we wanted to buy a house. And if you know anything about the historical housing market. I, we started looking at about March of 09, and that is just totally dumb luck. And we wound up being able to afford a house that we never would have been able to afford in an area. We never would have been able to afford it simply because of the housing crash. So it, it cost a lot of people, but it certainly helped us. Yeah. How yeah. much did you say again was in your 403B? Two, about two seventy seven, two hundred dollars gotcha. $277,000. Gotcha. And how much do you owe on that house? We owe one. One thirty-two and change. Yeah, one thirty-two and change. Any additional debt on on cars or student loans or anything else, or just the, just the mortgage? We, we have we owe about nine hundred fourteen dollars on a car loan, and the reason it's nine hundred fourteen dollars is because I, I hadn't carried a car payment since I had gotten married, and I actually got got uh, into an accident about eighteen months ago, and. As a total, my car, and so I had to go buy a di- yeah, I had to buy a different car, and the difference was two thousand five hundred dollars, and I I could have obviously could have paid it off at that time, but the the payment was like one point four nine percent, so I was like, I'm not going to yeah. pay it off. So uh, we pay eighty dollars a month on it. Gotcha. Well, by the time this is re- this is released, you it might even I guess <laughs> if you're only paying eighty, I won't be, but it'll be down yeah. to a few hundred bucks by the time this goes out. Yeah, yeah, and um. I broke a rule with that because, you know, when I first started being what I felt like was financially savvy with my money, it was I was never going to pay for another car payment. I mean, that was I was never going to have another car payment in my life. And so I broke that rule. But the math just made too much sense. I mean, the savings bonds are, are paying like two and a quarter between the fixed and the variable rate. And so one one four and nine, I, I mean, can't just pay that off. Right. So your cars, you're buying them used, I assume. How much are they? So I'm probably going to have spent a lot more money than your typical fire member of the community. And my, I have a 2012 Sienna that we paid 22,004 in 2015. And I have a 2013 Hyundai Sonata that I think the final amount was $10,100. And that had replaced a uh, 2012 Ford Focus that I bought brand new for 16000 You know, my, my goal with the 2012 Focus was to drive it until nobody could ever drive it anymore. And then, you know, happened to get into an accident. So now I replaced it with uh, the Sonata and that's the plan with that. And so the Sienna, I, I, my plan with Sienna is to drive it until you know, I have to give it away and just basically, you know, not let automobiles be much of a part of my financial plan. I mean, that I'm not a carper. Right. And right. you want to be a high percentage of your net worth. No, no, not absolutely not. So, so let's just kind of start from the beginning. You kind of mentioned in 2009, you bought the house. So how did this all get started? 
did you want to be teachers? Maybe talk. You, you mentioned it was kind of, it's kind of a calling to become teachers. So mention how you how you guys both become teachers, and then how did the financial uh, growth start? We were dating, and we we got engaged in 2007, and we had to obviously start saving for a wedding, and we decided that you know what can we save? Well, at the time we only had about four hundred dollars that we could set aside, which you know. At the time, we were, I think, 25 and 23 years old. That's, that was a lot of money. $400, still a lot of money. But we set that aside every month. We set it aside. We set it aside. And, you know, we had the wedding and we were able to pay off the wedding within a few months. But I had always been taught by a mentor of mine back uh, where I grew up that, you know, whenever you pay off a loan, bank it so that you can pay for the next thing. So when you have a car loan, if you pay off your car, don't go buy a new one bank that money we started doing that around that time so we got married in 08 and when the when the wedding was over we didn't take that extra 400 dollars that we had used to to save for the wedding and just go say well we can go blow it on something we continued saving it and then we both had car payments at the time and they were about 200 dollars each and when they were both out we started banking that and then we i had a 135 dollar a month bill because i was so smart that i financed an engagement ring and when that got paid, yeah, right. When that got, when that got paid off, that was $135. We started banking that. And so before you know it, in like 2009, we're banking like $1,000 a month just in a plain old vanilla savings account. We're saving a lot of money. And we realized very quickly, my wife and I both that, you know, this game isn't as hard as we've been told it is. And as long as you don't expand your lifestyle, if you're happy, you know, with the way you're living life and you don't expand it, this number can keep growing. And from that original $400, it's funny this week because I knew I was coming on to talk about it. I, I started doing the math. That $400 of free money between raises and between paying off both of our colleges, which at that time in 2008, 2009, we both had about 60000 in, in in debt on college loans. And you start paying these things off. And out of that $400, we've created like about $3,400 in monthly cash flow. And, wow. and all, all because of we, we looked, we took our lifestyle and we loved our lives. And when stuff started to get freed up financially, we just lived our lives and banked it. We found some place to put it. My wife was probably on board later than I was, but I think after she started seeing that, you know, you can have things in life if you don't go buy a new car every two years or you don't need the newest iPhone, if you're willing to buy a, you know, an, an iPhone that's three or four years old as far as the model, you can really get ahead of life because you know, it, it, it's really just math. And here we are, you know, out of that original $400, we have like almost $2,000 added in in daycare. We didn't have then, but that $2,000 in daycare was carved out of things that got paid off and, and raises at work. And we, we put about $1,000 in our Roth IRAs that was carved out of that extra money from that original 400 that we saved. And it's like, this, this is this myth that you have to just get on this treadmill and, and, and spend and spend and spend and get a bigger house once yours is, feels like it's too small because you have three kids now and only three bedrooms. This is a myth. This can be done. You just have to be happy with with what you have, and you have to understand that your happiness comes from other places. Yeah, that's great, and that's something I love about our story is is that you've kept it simple and you've stayed focused and you've shown that anybody can do it on any income. and And you guys are in your mid thirties. You're well on your way to becoming millionaires. And and I think that's relatable, right, for the average person. I think that's that's an inspiration to all of us that you know just staying focused and kind of 
keeping your goals day to day. You know, you mentioned offline that your your goals might not be these big pictures all the time, right? Or like yearly goals or whatever, but just kind of if you have your weekly and monthly monthly goals, all of that just keeps building and building and building. And then you look back a few years down the road and you say, wow, I have a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never, and, and my wife, we, she's asked me, she's, you know, with, with what we do, what's, what's your goal? What's, what's, what are we aiming towards? And, you know, I have ideas. I would like to celebrate a little bit, just, you know, the family, just, you know, maybe even just the two of us, whenever we get to a million with our assets. And then the next step's probably a million with our investable assets. And then I think the, the real goal, if you said, what is your ultimate goal? I, I've, I've gotten to the point where I think about, um, I think about 1.5 million with the house paid off would lead me to 100% independence. And I think that that would be the point where if something happened at my job or anything, I could just say, you know, I could really actually become a member of the fire community. But guys, uh, I never sat down and said, my goal is to be in the top 10% of wealth or to have this or have that. I don't think people who have the mentality that they just want to have money ever have money. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So do, do you consider yourself part of the fire community? Is retiring early in the plan at all? Or? I um I have this this talk with people at work because I have some people I work with who invest in rentals and who, who consider themselves to be more into that community. And I always tell them I'm, I'm a I was programmed to be a fire member. But the problem is I can't walk away from pension. You know, it's like I just can't. My, my options are really if I could fire, I would have to do it by about age 43 or 44. And I don't know that I would be able to do that. But because after that, it just makes too much sense to stick around with pension opportunities. I don't consider myself a member, but I tell you what, I, I admire the, what, what the people in the fire community do. And I, I'm not one of these people. And you see this a lot in some of the forums that, that I go to and a lot of these, you know, in the comment section of fire, um, community members. It's like, well, yeah, obviously they can do it because they don't have kids or obviously they can do it because they live in a, you know, a small house. Well, it's like, I don't hold that against them at all. I, those, those people, I mean, my hat's off to them that, that I've stolen so many good ideas from them as far as my own finances and Mr. Money Mustache and the way he's done things. And I mean, I, I, I admire those people greatly. So I, do I consider myself a member of the community? I probably imitate one. But I, I just, in reality, I can't leave. I can't leave work and for probably till the point where it doesn't make sense for me to leave work. Right. And I think you make a good point that there's always something that, that we can take from somebody. There's always something to learn. So I want to dive into your pension a little bit because we talked about that before recording. But first, I, I just want to ask you, have you seen the lifestyle change in your own lives? Have you have you changed your lifestyle at all as you guys have built up your net worth and had children? I have not. If anything, I feel like our lifestyle has become one that's simpler with a little less financial commitment. And, and it's funny because we've set, you know, we have this magical monthly number that we stay under for our, um, for our total spending. And this number is a pretty big number, but it includes our phone bills, which are, you know, a certain amount, obviously on the credit card and our cable bill and our groceries. But this number has been a static number for probably about 10 years. And we've had three children in that time. And we know right off the top of our heads, at least I do, because I handle a lot of the finances, the, the, um, you know, when money goes to this place or that place, I know at the end of every month, if it's at this number and we're below that number, I have a little extra to put towards, uh, something, either savings bonds or the taxable account. And if it's above that number, we don't have the extra money to do it. And, um, 
you know, we usually will talk about what happens. It's not like we have a, a big problem with it. We understand that with three kids, you know, sometimes bills are going to add up. But no, our lifestyles haven't crept. In fact, we've, we've cut cable. And, and the reason we cut cable is because we realized very quickly, number one, we don't watch it all that much. But number two, the creep of the price was going up. And we, we now stream, um, you know, using streaming services. And uh, we've done a very good job of when creep has, has started to set in, saying time out, let's examine what's going on and what can we do to change it. And then we change it. And we realize that our happiness comes from things like family and, and our work rather than, you know, whether or not we have the new iPhone. It's really admirable, right? And and, and you got to admit, it's one of the hardest things for people, right? Especially in this age with social media and comparison and, and, and the Joneses, right? I think it's probably worse than ever, I think. Probably most of us would agree with, right? So how do you stay so grounded in that? How do you, I mean, you obviously say no and you, and you have the self-discipline to do it. You know, what advice do you give to somebody who's maybe struggling with that? Well, the first the first thing I would I would tell somebody who's struggling with it is that First of all, money doesn't solve money problems. And I, I have this debate sometimes with people who I do, you know, talk finances with. And it's like, well, if this person is so much in debt, well, if they can get that money to get out of debt, then they'll be free. Well, I'm, I'm humongously a big believer in behavioral finding it. And so I always believe that if somebody's, you know, in deep debt and they were given the money to get out of debt rather than uh, figuring out a way to have a lifestyle that allowed them to get out of debt. If you just hand somebody the money to get out of debt within a short amount of time, they'll be right back into it because it wasn't the money that was the problem. It was their behavior. And so I am, if there's one thing that I would say that I truly believe in is that most of this, in fact, I would probably assume once you get a job that has a certain amount of income, all of it is behavioral. And so um, the best, some of the best advice I got from my mentor growing up, who was a much older gentleman in my neighborhood, who I, I look at as was one of the first fire members in the history of, of the fire community. He retired at age 48 in the, in the eighties. He, he would always say stuff like, you know, don't go spend money once you pay off a bill, bank it, put it in the stock market, put it in savings bond, put it in gold, put it in something that expects positive return. Don't go buy another car. He would always, you know, we would we would be sitting in his house and a new car would go by and he would say, yeah, that's a nice new car. He'd always say, remember this, though, you know, you get the new car and everybody tells you how nice it is the first day you have it. And then the second second month you have it, people tell you a little bit less. And then what happens is three or four years down the road, nobody's telling you how, how great your car is, but you still have the big payment. And you don't think your car is nice, but you got the payment. And what a lot of people actually wind up doing is they want to get that feeling again of everybody being, you know, so impressed, but they might still have two years of a loan left. So what do they do? They go roll it into the next loan. And he would tell me this and he's telling this to me and I'm 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. He probably says that to most 12 year olds and, you know, they roll their eyes and think, okay, whatever you're talking about. But I, I used to just listen to this and just eat it up. I mean, I had a natural inclination to understanding financial things, but most importantly, I, I had a natural inclination to learning from people who I thought made sense. And it just made sense to me that, well, yeah, why would you want to go pay? Like, I like, I like money to an extent. I like having money in the bank rather than money in a car. I just used to eat up every single bit of advice that, that this man would give me. And before you know it, you get into the real world and you get to be 25, 30, 35 years old and you realize that. He was right. You know, you can really get ahead of life if you just be content with what you have rather than worrying what else has. And, you know, you've got to figure out what drives you and what motivates you and your why, or else you're just always going to be unhappy. Money has nothing to do with that. Money is a small part of your life. The more you don't worry about money, 
the more money you're going to wind up with. And I really believe that up to the heart. You know, what I'm saying is that, you know, in society today, uh, we buy things we don't want, money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And that is so true. That is so true. And <laughs> for, for me, it was like, it's just never been about that. It's just never been about that. And for my wife either, she's very non-material. Uh, I married well and, uh, she's, she's just, she's just very non-material. She's happy with, you know, if I, if I want to get a new iPhone, if I were to go get an iPhone tomorrow, if mine stopped working, I'd probably get like a 6S or a 7. And if I came home with a 6S or 7 for her, she'd be totally, if I came home with no phone for her, she'd be pretty okay with that too. So we both bought in. And when you start to see the fruits of it, it's kind of easy to buy it. Totally. The gentleman was practicing fire before fire was cool. I'm telling, I'm telling you, like he, he was, he was in, I don't know what growing up for everybody's like, but in where I grew up in a very rural area, it, it is, it's kind of like a, a community raises kids. And so, you know, you know all your neighbors and you hang out with all your neighbors and you help them when they need help. And, um, it just, we would, he would talk to me for some reason. He would talk to me about, you know, trying to help me with things. And it wasn't just finances. It would be, you know, things with a lot of different areas, you know, fixing cars and stuff like this. But I just, I just ate it up and he would just, he, he had this humongous farm and he would say, he would say stuff like, Don, if you, if you don't go buy stupid stuff all the time and you don't need a new car every year, you can get all this. And he would put his hands up and he had this big 85 acre farm and he had this big lot of land and he had a nice house. And I'm like, well, I want that. And so when I started working, a lot of people get their first job and they want to go buy their first car. I started working and I, you guys can believe me or not. The highlight of my first week was finding HR and setting up my 403B. I mean, that was, that was my thing. I'm investing now. I'm a, I'm, I'm an adult. I mean, that's how I felt. It was just something that came to me because it always felt like it was something that was interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So I want to, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning. You said that you had 7,500 in gold and that might have been one of your, your big mistakes. Why, why do you still have it in gold and why is that a mistake? Well, I had, I, <laughs> I bought it. Don't go looking at a gold chart when I tell you when I bought it. Cause I bought <laughs> it about, yeah, I bought it in 2012 at about, about this time actually in 2012. And at that time, of course I didn't have 7,500 in gold. At that time I had about 15,000 in gold. Actually, it was by about 12,000. And um, I got it because it was one of the things that always interested me, not just because it, it had value. I'm a history teacher, and uh, I teach ancient history, and you can't teach ancient history without talking about gold a lot. So it was something that always interested me, having gold coins. And so I shouldn't call it a mistake because, quite honestly, I'm about, you know, I, I've lost about 10% a year since I've owned it for about seven years, which I, sh I have to point out, it's gone down for seven years, haven't sold it. I haven't, I haven't locked in the loss. So I'm just, I'm just waiting for the rebound. But in all honesty, it was something that if it rose to 50,000, I wouldn't sell it. It's just something that's cool. That was cool to me at the time. I had, you know, by being smart with money, I had gotten to a point where I'd set a lot of money aside and had a lot of money in the, in the savings account. So I figured, you know, what the heck? I, I always wanted to own gold. Let's go buy some gold. And I bought gold and it happened to be probably about the worst time you could buy gold, but I don't. I'll never sell it. It's something that, you know, unless it just explodes, which it's probably not going to, it's probably going to be something that's left in my will, to be honest with you, but I have it. And so I included it in my net worth because if, you know, there was something to happen tomorrow that I needed to cash out money, I could easily cash it out. Yeah. So um, I, want, it, I want to talk about but, your pension setup and maybe just shed some light on to those who may be pr pursuing financial independence and how a, how a pension can play a role in that. 
you know, there's a lot of people out there that are teachers or that work for the state and, and have access to pensions still, although pensions aren't nearly what they used to be. Do you want to just give us a little bit of light on that? Sure. So, um, depending on your state, and I can speak for Virginia, and I know Pennsylvania is like this as well because I taught in Pennsylvania uh, for a short time as a sub and I was in their pension program. Your pension has a present day money value that is essentially a cash out value. So for me, that number is a little bit more than 38,000. For my wife, it's right around there as well. But she, she has a little bit more because she's taught a, a year longer than I have down. Um, that is the value that if tomorrow I send in my resignation and I said, you know, I'm done working, they would send me that check and they would take taxes out first. So it'd be about a $38,000 check. That 38000 is essentially all money I put in. They're just giving me my, my money back with a tiny bit of interest. But what happens is the closer you get to retirement age in a pension system, you're, you're not going to get that money back. That money is going to begin to um, approach the point where it gets converted into an annuity on your behalf. And in Virginia, what's going to happen is it's going to essentially get matched starting when it gets converted into an annuity the difference between what I've put in and uh, what they need to fund the annuity is going to be matched by the state and the local district. So I think a lot of people, number one, don't realize that their pensions have an actual, they have a money value. And depending on where you're at, uh, you might have to go through some hoops to get that value, but it does have an actual cash out value. And number two, um, that the fact that a pension is so valuable, once you teach to a certain point, I think in most municipalities and in most states, you you basically it makes very little sense to fire unless you have so much money that you're absolutely certain you'll never need more money because like for me I'm going into year 13 and I I really I'll probably put another 70 to 80,000 dollars in the pension system between now and the time I'm eligible to retire which is in about 17 years and the payout that I should that I should get at that time is just going to be enormous compared to that 78,000 it's not going to make me feel rich but it's certainly if you were to buy an annuity that it will provide the amount of income my pension would, you would be paying a ton more to, to buy that annuity than, say, I would have put into the state system. So it, the fire fire community, I think I, I admire them greatly. And, and I'm telling you, had I found the fire, the fire um, mentality in the fire community when I was 18, 19, 20, I, I may have. I may have really dedicated myself in different ways and even saved more and even got a, maybe a smaller house and really dedicated myself to get to that point. I found it when I was in my mid thirties when I already had two children and, um, I was already into my teaching career. And so the reality is that I kind of try to live a fire mindset and a fire, um, a fire lifestyle, but I, you know, just, just like, um, millionaire teacher, it just, I, I, I would have to just be very, very wealthy on, like my 403Bs and my taxable accounts to justify walking away from it. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. And it's the same in some of the military people that we've interviewed. They say the same thing. So, Right. Yeah. You know, it definitely plays a big part. And, you know, it's an interesting topic. I think we could talk about it all day, right? How many, how much is going to be left in pensions? How much should one expect from a pension return? You know, if, if I'm just starting out now, should I expect there to be pension money? And what's the rate of return? You know, I think, I think these are all important questions to be asking if one does have a pension and, and just something to be mindful of if you're banking on that in retirement or, or banking on that to retire a little bit earlier. And, right? and I, I exactly had a, had we, you know, had life taken us a different road, had, you know, maybe if we couldn't have children or, you know, if, if, you know, maybe if I had been still single or, if, you know, 
there are a lot of different roads that might have taken me down that, oh, I'm in my early 40s, I'll cash out, you know, what I have in the pension program now because, you know, I don't need as much because I don't have children. You know, you go down these roads and, you know, one one small change turns into a huge change. And But at, at this point, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I could right. see that, yeah, as you say, being true for uh, police officers and military members as well. Right. Yep, I agree with you. So I just want to go into some rapid fire questions here before we end with uh, any of the financial mistakes you've made and, and any advice you give to people that may be in your similar situation. So what's the most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Oh, I, th- I think uh, I bought $39 jeans, two pairs last year at Kohl's, but I had gift cards. My own, I, I haven't bought, I haven't bought, I haven't spent more than $20 on an item of article of clothing in years. Uh, it's like $39, $39 last year at Kohl's, but like I said, on gift cards. So you got to excuse yeah. me on that. No, not very good. Most expensive shoes? $60, $60. And I, and I bought them in 2010 and I still wear them. They're my brown dress shoes for work. Okay. Most expensive car? Oh, the Sienna. We have a Toyota minivan that we spent about $22,000 on. And, you know, I didn't want to spend that much, but the justification in my mind was that it was, number one, it was used. So some of the depreciation was off. And number two, it's a Toyota. And it, it's one of these deals where, uh, you know, when we bought it and I was in my mid-30s and it was like, well, I'm committing now to having this thing until probably I'm in my 50s. And that's totally the plan. And this is four years later. It's not changed at all. Right. Okay. Most expensive meal out that you've paid for personally? Took my wife on a date when we were dating and might have spent $60. No, spent, I tell you what, if there, if, if somebody said to you, if somebody's asking me and said, Hey, we're writing a book, what do you think is the biggest key to, to saving money? I would tell them flat out, stop eating out. Right. I mean, that is the biggest thing we did. I, we, we've eaten out maybe we have eaten a meal outside of our home that we didn't cook maybe four times in the last year, except for when we're traveling, like when we go see family and stuff. But we just don't don't eat out. That's not our lifestyle. Yeah, and it's interesting to see. Just to add, when you know, when you work in a big office environment, people that bring food every day, or the people that you know, a couple times a week they go out, or the people that go out every day. Just interesting don't, to notice. Don't get me started on that. You know, I just I cannot. My wife and I. I mean, I, like I said, I married well in the, in. in the lifestyle I want to lead. And we just sit back and laugh sometimes. It's like, what? just, we would just a hundred percent rather make, you know, something at home and eat it at home. And it's just going out in Northern Virginia. It's not just expensive, but it's crowded. It's just not, not, not good. Yep. And it helps the, it helps the bank account. Okay. What item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you? The, the, the biggest splurge, I believe that two things, probably number one, I can't, see ever owning a different phone than an iphone i've owned two androids and they're fine phones but finally got got an iphone about two years ago and i know in the fire community uh, a much cheaper way of having a phone with you know republic wireless and i've looked into to republic and this and that and i use an mvno carrier so i don't use one of the big carriers but i just can't go without an iphone and i'll spend the extra few hundred bucks every three or four years to get it it's just it's just, just, I don't have a, a Mac computer, but it's just, it's easy to use to me. And I just, I dig it. And the second thing is I drive my Toyota, my minivan, and just the difference between it and every other car that I've had is, is just, uh, night and day. So I don't think I'll probably ever own a different car than a, than a Toyota. 
And I know I bought a Honda Sonata about 18 months ago, but that was kind of when I was in a bind without a car and it was rushed and I didn't have time to make a, the most educated purchase I could make. But those two things to me are like luxuries that whenever I, a need arises for, for something, those are the directions I'm probably always going to go. I just, I just can't see myself owning things other than those whenever I, I need, you know, a phone or a car. I know that's boring, but I'm telling you. I'm not no, no, that's how it is. That's that's not that doesn't matter. Uh, high school and college GPA, if you can remember. <clears throat> I was I was a terrible student in high school. Uh, my high school my high school GPA was was as such that I I didn't get into any of the colleges I applied to. I wound up going to community college for a year and a half. I I was not a good student, and I I just which was one of the motivations to why I went into to teaching because. I just I felt like I was a good student amongst teachers who understood me and who understood how to um, how to, to treat me and other students. The problem was that if I was in a place that I didn't feel like the teachers were you know dedicated and liked their job, then I I responded pretty negatively. My high school GPA was probably in the high ones, low twos. My college GPA once I I grew up a little bit, my college GPA I graduated with a three seven, and then and then I my master's degree i think it was a four four oh i i i was not a good student so not in high school but yeah, uh, you know four oh sounds good to me man <laughs> yeah i I, um, like to, I like to tell my students that um you know you can't you can't tell me that you can't do stuff because i was in your spot and i i failed a lot when i was younger and i think sometimes that perspective helps when right. you're working with young people that you don't come across like you're a know-it-all who always had it come so easy to them because it didn't yep. with me yep totally agree Okay, what's your, if you know, household spending per year? My household spending per year is at about $74,000. I was thinking about this the other night. And that includes mortgage, which is all in with my HOA is about $1,500 a month. That includes almost $20,000 in daycare and actual spending spending. On a, on a month to month basis, if you take out the mortgage and the daycare, we only spend about $2,500 a month with three kids. Yeah. I mean, we, and that is not, uh, you, that does not take a lot of effort for us to do. That is, that is something that I'm like, uh, we talked about a lot earlier. That just came from a natural mindset of, you know, life was good and we were happy. And as money started coming in and we got raises and stuff, we just put it somewhere. So that's all we spend. It's not a whole lot of money. Yep. And then as much as you're comfortable sharing, what's been your range of household income through your working life? So when we started, we started out with salaries, uh, but about $74,000 in 2006, 2007. Last year, our combined base salaries were about 125. So within that time, I, I got my master's degree, which resulted in about a $6,000 a year raise. And then I do a lot of, I guess, what would what would be considered side hustles. So I, I coach as many sports as I, I can coach. I've coached football and basketball just about every year I've taught. Last year, I only coached football because we had two children and my wife was expecting, or we were expecting. So I, I took uh, some time off in the winter. And I, I work for the Parks and Rec Department down here, which... Um, I can usually work about 10 to 20 hours a pay period every two weeks on the side, which pays pretty well to, as a side gig. And so our base is about 125 last year, but our overall income was about 144. Awesome. And, and so just to, to follow up on that, how much did you earn on the side that wasn't part of your, your W-2 jobs as teachers? So I have written down, but I can tell you easily off the top of my head, we, 
I'm the department chair of the of the department I teach in at my high school, and that was about three thousand uh, dollars. The two coaching or the one coaching stipend I got last year was about almost four thousand dollars. Between that and the Parks and Rec side gig, the Parks and Rec probably ten to thirteen thousand dollars off the top of my head, and that's not a, an annual like some years I'll have thirteen thousand to fifteen thousand from that, and other years I might get five thousand. And it, yeah, what it that's, is, still, that's still nice, right? Well, what it, what it was is that, I, you know, when I started teaching, I just never said no. So I just I just never said no. And so, of course, when you, when you start your life, we're saving for a wedding. So I need money to save for a wedding. So you guys have something you need done. I'll do it. And then you make money. And then you have you have your wedding and you pay it off. Then you're saving for a down payment to your house. Well, now I've got another reason to do, you know, if, if, if my administrator comes to me and says, you know, like this last year, my administrator came in like April, said, Hey, we have some hours after school for after school detention. If you want to supervise and it paid pretty well. I mean, it, it paid really well, but even if it didn't pay super well, my answer was always going to be yes. And they know that because when they come to me, I always say yes. And so that added some extra income, but I meet so many people who, this, these opportunities come around summer school and night school because we have night school for students who might be on like uh, suspended. And they're like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And, and I look at it and I'll be like, then, then you can't complain whenever you feel like you can't your, get your college loans paid off because right. you have these opportunities for, for side hustles and you don't take them. And, and it's like, so, you know, we, we bought our house. And then so if somebody came to me and asked me, I said yes, because now I'm going to have a kid. You know, we had our first child in 2012. And so I always just had these reasons when somebody came to me with an opportunity. Yeah. You know, the worst, the worst thing you can do is, is turn down opportunities, in my opinion, you know, for extra income, because number one, not only does it help your bottom line too, it helps you with your employer. I mean, you know, who doesn't love an employee that always says, yeah, I'll help you out or yes, I'll do that. But it's like these things add up. These things just add up and, and they compound and, and you just get to get to these enormous places financially and in, in your in your big big picture life because of all these small decisions that you make that help you. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, everything from you know eat, not eating out as much to working side hustles, right? Totally agree with you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I I can't I can't stress enough that it, it bothers me so much when I read articles about how you know people can't get ahead in this generation and. It's like, well, yeah, you can. You, you just have to go do it. You know, you have to stop talking about it and go do it. And and it's it's not easy, but it's like dieting. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But it's 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 a it's you're capable of doing it. Is I guess what I would like to tell people. Right, right. And I think it's it's a, it's a great message, and we're appreciative that you came on the show because you know almost nearly every episode we have people write in and say, hey, you know, thanks so much to these guys and for sharing their stories. And I think sometimes people are reluctant to share it, right? But maybe they don't think it's as exciting or other people are doing other cool things or they don't, you know, maybe their investment portfolio isn't as interesting as others. But the fact of the matter is, is I think your story is so relatable to so many people and, and all of us can learn something. So just really, again, appreciate you coming on and, and, and sharing your story. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to to have come on and shared my story. And when I, I've I've plowed through so many of your episodes, and I I think I think you know we need more of what you guys do. We just need it. We need it for for people who are young, who are old. And I I just I'm happy that I was able to come on and share. And I hope somebody can take something from something that we've talked about today and use it for themselves. 
Yeah, Donald, just to, to wrap up, is there any last piece of advice you would give to somebody who's just starting out? You've dropped a ton of great nuggets for our listeners and our audience and, and, and people out there. Is there anything else you would share? I, I would just, I would tell people that, you know, as you, as you progress through your financial life, you, you, there are certain norms and expectations that we have on people today. You know, that whenever daycare gets paid off, that you can, now you've got free money to go buy the bigger house or that you got an advancement at work. So now you can, you know, upgrade your car or, you know, it's just, it's this, this enormous amount of peer pressure. And I don't know if it's always been like that, but it certainly is, is now. But I would just tell people that you don't have to compare yourself to others. You know, you should compare yourself to you and where you were last year and the year before that and the year before that. And I know it's not easy, but your happiness doesn't have to do with how nice your house is or how big, how big your, um, mortgage is. Your, your happiness is something that you're going to have, whether you have a tiny house or a big house and that the peer pressure is real, but you know, try as much as possible not to fall into it and understand that you can do a lot of the things that you don't think you can do. And, and for me, I, once my children are out of daycare, I'll probably be running about a 50% savings rate about a 45, 50% savings rate. And you don't have to go that far. You could have half that. You could save 20%. But, but it's, it's so easy if you don't allow yourself to get in that trap of constantly being in that cycle of debt, 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 paid off, more debt, more debt. And it's just don't get in the cycle and understand that there is a different way of doing it. You don't have to do what everybody else is doing. Awesome. That's Don with a net worth of 630,000. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so happy to have been here. Thanks, Don. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.